August of 1901, Arvilia Walbridge and her mother Flora arrived in Great Falls, Montana, and they found a room at a boarding house where Arvilia would meet her future husband, George Melville, a man with large black eyes and a, quote, rather striking personality. I would say George and Arvilia had what I would deem dramatic, impulsive personalities. And they had known each other for only three days when they tied the knot on August 19th of that year. And it must have been a shock to George when, only a couple of months after the wedding, a Sheriff Conley from Deer Lodge County arrived unannounced on their doorstep and hauled Arvilia back to Phillipsburg, Montana, to question her as to the whereabouts of her first husband, Otis Walbridge. As Arvilia told officers how her father, Joseph Hunter, had murdered her husband and had terrorized her into silence, George felt sorry for his young bride, and he supported her throughout her father's trial. After her father was convicted and sentenced to 99 years in prison, Arvilia and George returned to Great Falls in 1902, and Arvilia assumed the name Florence Willis to escape the odium that hung over the name of Hunter, which doesn't make much sense seeing she had already assumed the married name of Melville, but whatever. Not long after, the couple ran into money troubles, by which I mean Arvilia spent far more than George earned. To remedy this issue by which I, of course, mean to make the situation worse. Arvilia forged some documents and racked up even more debt at a local store. The store responded by suing Arvilia for the unpaid sum. Arvilia, in turn, swore that she had been intimate with a senior member of the plaintiff's firm, and that said intimacy had settled the account, that is, sex for cash. So really... There was no balance due. The man that Arvilia had supposedly slept with was a very well-respected businessman, which we all know doesn't mean Jack Squat, but back then it meant a lot, and nobody believed Arvilia's claims. It also didn't help that around the same time, she had accused several other men of, quote, undue intimacy with her and had circulated scandalous tales about their wives. Frankly, it sounds like she was a fucking pain in the ass, and I'm sure that everyone was happy when the couple decided to relocate southward to the equally notorious Butte, Montana, where George had family. In Butte, Arvilia assumed yet another identity— that of an unmarried, upper-class English woman named Lorna Melville, a name and an identity which she had apparently borrowed from the novel East Lynn, a sleazy sensation novel from the Victorian era, well known for its absurd plotline which featured infidelity and multiple identities and... (laughs) that word, absurd is going to seem funny in a minute. So, Arvilia goes out dancing one night, and she meets a local miner named Harry Northey. At another dance, 
she introduces George and Harry, then pulls Harry aside afterwards to say that George is just her uncle, so Harry is free to keep seeing her. Maybe Harry was a little suspicious of the relationship between Arvilia and George, but Arvilia allayed his concerns by producing a group picture in which George is standing next to a woman who Arvilia says is George's wife. In actuality, this woman was just the wife of one of George's co-workers, and they just happened to be in a group photo together. Nevertheless, Harry was convinced and smitten with Arvilia, and he proposed to her less than three weeks into their relationship, and she accepted. As the day of the wedding drew near, Arvilia purchased a wedding dress. She even showed off the dress to her husband George, and said that it was a bridesmaid's dress to be worn at a friend's wedding. But, of course, she wore it to her own when she married Harry on September 2nd of 1905. After the wedding, Arvilia split time between the two men, feeding Harry some story about how she had no choice but to stay with her uncle because he was helping her secure her inheritance. Meanwhile, she told George she felt sick and she wanted to go to a friend's house to have her friend nurse her back to health. She also persuaded George that it was necessary for her to go to the coast and recuperate, and she arranged to store her household goods, including some furniture, with a friend, which, of course, that friend was Harry Northey. So George, quite kindly, furnished his rival's house for free. And she promised George she would return from the coast at intervals to see him, which one of my first questions would have been, in that case, why don't you just leave your goods and shit at the house, but... Whatever. As the summer of 1905 waned, George became suspicious of his wife's constant comings and goings and her ever more outlandish stories. And when he found out where his wife, not to mention his furniture, had gone, he was understandably pissed off. And he went to the court and filed charges against Arvilia for bigamy. The charging document listed a multitude of aliases, including Arvilia C. Hunter, Lorna Melville, Lorna V. Northey, Lily Avilia Walbridge, Cassandra Hunter. So what's a girl like Arvilia to do now, now that she's been caught in a lie? Well, tell another lie, of course, and another and another and another... She continued to insist that she was from Lancashire, England, and that her parents were aristocrats, Mother Lady Burnett Severn, and that she was the heiress to a large fortune, and that her favorite brother was on his way to Butte to prove her identity, which everyone knew was a total crock of shit. Everyone except poor Harry Northey. She even managed to convince Harry that the bigamy charge was an elaborate scheme by her uncle George to get a hold of the family estate. To reassure Harry about her identity, Arvilia wrote several letters to her mother in England, but rather than mail them directly to Lady Burnett Severn, 
as she addressed them to the postmaster of an English town. Arvelia turned the sealed letters over to Harry, and he sent them out. When the postmaster opened the letters that had been addressed to him, he discovered inside was an envelope that was addressed to Harry Northey in Walkerville, Montana. So the postmaster wrote a small note on the envelope to indicate that it had been received from Butte, Montana. Then he dutifully mailed the letter to Harry Northey. When Harry opened the letter, he found a letter from Arvelia's English mother in Arvelia's handwriting with a note that said the letter had originated from Butte, Montana, not England. All of which should have been a clue, but Harry took the letter as evidence that Arvelia was telling the truth, and he indignantly resented any suggestion of bad faith on the part of the woman, and Harry hired an attorney to defend his falsely accused wife. Uh, to prove Arvelia's true identity, George Maywood is called to town. If you remember, probably not, this was like two weeks ago, but uh, George Maywood had served as Joseph Hunter's defense attorney at the trial where Arvelia gave testimony against her father. So uh, George Maywood takes one look at Arvelia and confirms that she is indeed Arvelia Hunter Walbridge Melville, daughter of Joseph Hunter, not Lorna Melville, daughter of Lady Burnett Severn. But Arvelia, bless her soul, she still isn't quite ready to throw in the towel. To accommodate Mr. Maywood's identification, Arvelia admitted to being in Phillipsburg at the time of the trial, not to testify, but to... I don't think she ever really said what the hell she was doing in Phillipsburg in March of 1902, but it was most definitely not for the purpose of attending the trial, and she had most definitely not been a witness to anything. And Mr. Maywood was just mistaken. Mr. Maywood was beside himself and just as unimpressed with her now as he had been during her father's trial. Uh, speaking to reporters, he called her irresponsible and said, quote, Her demeanor and improbable stories are the same now as they were when she was a witness at the Hunter trial. While the story what she told at the trial was a most impossible one, she told it with such deliberation that it was impossible to impeach her. Her stories were remarkably clever. It was solely upon her testimony that Hunter was convicted, and the most damaging feature of the whole trial was the fact which she was admitted that after the disappearance of Walbridge, Hunter assumed the name of Meyer, and he and his daughter— now, Mrs. Melville Northey lived together as man and wife. There is a reasonable ground on which to base the theory that Walbridge is still alive. Which, I mean, let's be real, it wasn't just Arvelia's testimony that sent her father to prison. There was a quite a bit of evidence. You have 
The victim, Otis Walbridge, who wrote to his family once a week without fail, who suddenly just stopped writing. You have a wounded skeleton found with clothes that matched what Otis had been wearing, and a slew of people who had heard Joseph threaten to kill the man. It wasn't just Arvilia's testimony that put him away. Mr. Maywood also took issue with Arvilia's claim that she had been so ill that she'd had to be carried into court on a stretcher. He said that not five minutes after she arrived back at her hotel after court, that the too-sick-to-walk woman was able to walk and run and get around as well as anybody else. And Arvilia would later admit that she had feigned being sick to garner the jury's sympathy. Mr. Maywood went on for some length about all the reasons Otis Walbridge was likely still alive and, well, I'll be honest, the esteemed attorney's story is just about as convoluted and absurd as any story that Arvilia told. It involves a pair of mysterious men and a pair of vanishing horses, an organ grinder, and a traveling picture show. It's bonkers, but everything about this whole situation is bonkers, so, I mean, why not? Still, all of this gave Joseph Hunter hope, as word reached him in prison that Arvilia had recanted her testimony, which is weird, because if she never testified, how would she have testimony to recant? But nevertheless, she recanted her testimony. And Joseph made a statement to the newspapers that he believed that his daughter was insane. From an early age, he said, she had showed signs of mental illness and a desire for the sensational. Often, she told startling stories and did crazy things, seemingly for the simple pleasure of creating a commotion. And she lied about everything, petty things things that just didn't matter. Even now, she says she's 19 years old, when in actuality she's only 18, born on November 24th, 1887, and hello, fellow Sagittarius. Though the family records in Nebraska state that Arvilia was born in 1885. You know what I think? I think Joseph himself was a scam artist, he was involved in some shady transactions, at the very least. And I have this picture of him forging documents and lying about his daughter's age, to the point that he forgot her actual date of birth. As to Maywood and Joseph's assertions that Walbridge was still alive, Arvilia said that there might be something to that. She couldn't say that Walbridge was dead, that was for sure. Heck, she didn't even know Walbridge, so how could she say whether he or not he was dead? And like her father, holding out hope in prison, Arvilia still isn't ready to throw in the towel and admit defeat. Instead, she concocts a new plan, one inspired by something one of the city's well-known attorneys had said. A reporter had asked this attorney that, had Arvilia been his client, what kind of defense might he have come up with? 
and he answered that maybe he would suggest that some fiend had hypnotized the poor girl into behaving the way that she was. Maybe her very own husband had hypnotized her to hide some deep, dark secret, and only now was she beginning to break free from his spell. Hmm. And uh, shortly after the attorney comes up with this ridiculous defense, Arvilia sends for her husband, Harry Northy, and says that she wants to see a hypnotist because her uncle George, he's a hypnotist, and he had been keeping her in a hypnotic trance for quite some time. And if she could only be brought out of it, then Uncle George could have no further influence upon her. This, she said, is my only salvation. Uh, to humor his wife more than anything, Harry was gullible, but he wasn't that gullible. Harry went about town seeking a hypnotist, and he found one at the Montana Standards newsroom. <laughs> Mr. Malcolm George O'Malley, reporter and gubernatorial candidate for the Socialist Party, claimed to have occult power and agreed to accompany Harry to the jail. On the way, they picked up Arvilia's attorney, Jesse B. Root, who was none too happy about the whole scheme, along with a slew of reporters to act as witnesses. At the jail, attorney Root stood by, unimpressed and expressing his conviction that the hypnotist was a fake, as Mr. O'Malley stuck a pin in Arvilia's arm for a full three-quarters of an inch with no reaction, and Root quipped that O'Malley should take advantage of his newfound power and see his boss about a raise. As Arvilia sank deeper and deeper into the hypnotic spell, Mr. O'Malley asked why her husband George would have wanted to hypnotize her. What dark secret was he hiding? And Arvilia answered that she had witnessed George kill her first husband, Otis Walbridge. But she still maintained that Joseph Hunter was not her father and that she was the daughter of Lady Severn of England. But... She had indeed been at Joseph Hunter's trial and had falsely testified against him because... Because George had hypnotized her, of course, and had forced her to testify. Because... It just so happened that on the day Otis Walbridge was murdered, Arvilia had been in the forest just outside of Phillipsburg for reasons that she could never explain, seeing as she was not Joseph Hunter's daughter and had no reason to be there. But she was there, and she had witnessed George shoot Otis. George had then threatened her and hypnotized her so that she would accuse her own father, or rather Joseph Hunter, who was, of course, not her father, but either way, George had hypnotized her so that she would accuse 
this innocent man of the crime. Why in the world, then, her attorney asked, had she sent her father, or Joseph Hunter, who was, of course, not her father, to prison for murder? And why in the world would George Melville want to kill Otis Walbridge, a man, so far as anyone knew, he had never met? To this, Arvilia replied that George had fancied Walbridge's wife, not her, of course, because she had never been married to Otis Walbridge, because she was not Arvilia Hunter. But George had fancied some mystery woman who had been Otis's wife, and good Christ. At some point while she was being questioned, it also came to light that Arvilia was wearing some stolen jewelry, which she, of course, said that a George had given her and then had forced her to wear, using his powers of hypnosis. One newspaper man quipped that about the only thing Arvilia didn't accuse George of making her do was to marry Harry Northey. Now, as ridiculous as this all sounds, because it is ridiculous, George admitted that he did, in fact, practice hypnotism, because of course he did. He had taken up the study of hypnosis at his wife's request because she thought that it would benefit her when she became sick. But he denied having the ability to make her do anything against her will. And besides, George said, he was not the only hypnotist in town, and not the only hypnotist infatuated with Arvilia Hunter Walbridge Melville. And this is why I think this couple was just, they were meant to be together. George says that a man named Mosher, who had escaped from jail and was wanted for killing a deputy sheriff, had at some point in this saga had become infatuated with Arvilia. This was back when they were living in Great Falls. And Mosher had tracked her all the way to Butte and found her just before she married Harry Northey. And according to George, this man Mosher was the real hypnotist. And this was all part of an elaborate plot where Mosher had hypnotized Arvilia to feign insanity so that she would be committed to an asylum, at which point Mosher would show up, bring her out of the hypnotic spell under which he had placed her, and the two of them would ride off into the sunset together. Basically, I think this whole thing sounds like the plot for a slapstick comedy from the 1980s. It's bonkers. And Arvilia's poor attorney, Jesse Root, had just about made up his mind at this point to go ahead and plead insanity and introduce into evidence the many sensational stories Arvilia had told since her arrest and the many contradictions they contained. Mr. Root argued that, surely, if she had been under George Melville's influence this entire time, he'd at least have had enough sense to have her talk consistently. 
though why he should have sense to have her talk consistently, but she shouldn't have the sense to keep up a consistent story. I don't know. And can we keep in mind that Arvilia is only in jail on a bigamy charge, which, though it was a bigger deal back then than it is today, it wasn't like she was facing life imprisonment if she were convicted. Finally, because at some point this ridiculous charade has to come to an end, George goes to Harry and persuades the besotted man to accompany him to the jail. As Northy stands outside the cell, beyond Arvilia's field of vision, George goes into her cell, and Arvilia throws herself into his embrace. She hugs and kisses him, and says that she was so tired of Harry anyway. He was nothing but a poor, ignorant minor. Upon witnessing this, Harry enters the cell, and at last, he accepts that Arvilia has duped him. Now, you can't help but feel kind of bad for the guy. He was a fool, but it appears he was a decent fool. The next night, Arvilia swallowed poison, or so she said, but it appeared that this was only a bluff and yet another attempt to gain sympathy because there's just no end with this woman. Arvilia is eventually sentenced to a whopping six months in jail for bigamy in the home of the Good Shepherd in Helena, Montana. Now, in another sign that George and Arvilia were just made for each other, George is also charged with bigamy because he as it turns out, has been shacking up with another woman, and he has asked this other woman to marry him, even though he's still married to Arvilia. George is sentenced to 90 days in jail for living with a woman not his wife, and George bitterly proclaims that the only reason he was sent to jail was because he was being persecuted and because he had no money for a lawyer to fight the charge. Now, upon hearing about George's betrayal, Arvilia sues for divorce. Then she writes George a letter in which she vehemently denies having any desire to get divorced because, of course she did, because she is... Arvilia, Lorna, Hunter, Walbridge, Melville. And I'm sure that in her world, this makes perfect sense. Now, both George and Arvilia are eventually released from jail and then reunited, and they settle into a quiet, uneventful life. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course, I'm kidding. We haven't even gotten to the second murder yet. So, after this whole fiasco had concluded and the two lovers had been reunited, Arvilia and George moved north to Helena, Montana, where George found work at the Jay Gould Mine. But, as luck would have it, the mine closed down the very next day, and George, along with several others, was out of a job. One of those others was a man named Winfield Guthrie, 
a widower with two small boys and a house in a place called Bald Butte. As the men commiserated over their lost employment, George arranged for himself and Arvilia to board with Guthrie. They would pay a modest rent, and Arvilia would help care for Winfield's two young sons, a seven-year-old Vivian and Vivian's younger brother. Sometime after taking on the task of managing two small children, Arvilia became terribly sick and bedridden, so Winfield hired a woman named Nora to assist around the house. It sounds like this arrangement lasted for several weeks until one morning when, as Arvilia lay in bed, little Vivian started pounding on her door with a hammer. Arvilia became irate, and she administered what she described as, quote, a severe shaking to the little boy. According to Vivian, Arvilia had done more than just scold or even shake him. She had hit him over the head with the hammer. Later that day, Arvilia was at work in the kitchen and cutting up some things with a hunting knife. She stopped what she was doing, and she walked to the woodshed, knife still in hand for some reason. And Winfield, who was a reportedly kind and affectionate father, and was none too happy about how Arvilia had chose to discipline Vivian, he seized Arvilia by the wrists, slapped her across the face, and, quote, applied many insulting epithets. Moments later, George returned from work and found his wife in tears. After Arvilia told George what had happened, the two marched to the house to confront Winfield. Winfield denied Arvilia's accusations. He never hit her, and he called her a liar. Don't call me a liar she said, and she brandished the hunting knife before Winfield's face. George took the knife from her. Then Arvilia grabbed George's coat and said, Don't kill him, George. Oh, God. George backed off. But at some point, Winfield Guthrie wound up outside his house, a knife having been plunged into his chest just below the collarbone. Vivian remembered the incident a little bit different, for he had overheard Arvilia tell George that Guthrie had abused her. Then she said, Go for him, George. Kill him. At this point, Winfield headed for the kitchen, followed closely by Arvilia and George, George picking up the knife as he went. Frightened, Vivian fled from the room, and minutes later, he heard his father scream, then saw him run from the house onto an adjoining field where he collapsed. Then George appeared on the porch, swinging the knife. As the two now, or soon-to-be, orphaned boys looked down on their father as he lay dying, George turned to the boys and said, I've killed him, yes, and I have a notion to kill you, too. As George sat in jail, charged with Winfield Guthrie's murder, 
Arvelia took this time to reiterate her claims that George had also murdered her first husband, Otis Walbridge, going so far as to furnish an affidavit to Governor Toole and a written confession to Attorney General Galen. Her story was much the same now as it had been in 1905, she said that George had murdered her first husband, Otis, so that he could come and marry Arvilia, and he had then forced her to perjure herself. However, by now, officers had had a chance to investigate Arvilia's claims, and they had satisfied themselves that George was in Great Falls at the time that Otis Walbridge was killed, and that he and Arvilia, they didn't even meet until over a year after her first husband's death. And doesn't it feel like, like this can provide insight into Otis Walbridge's final moments on Earth? For this sounds very similar to what she said about her father's reason for killing Otis Walbridge. She told her father that Otis had been abusive towards her, and doesn't it seem just the least bit likely that Arvilia encouraged her father to murder Otis in the same way that she encouraged George to kill Winfield Guthrie? George was found guilty of murder for stabbing Winfield Guthrie. Uh, the jury initially sentenced him to 50 years, but the judge thought that was excessive, and he reduced George's sentence down to 20 years, citing a number of recent cases where the defendant had received a similar sentence. George would spend less than 10 years in prison, for in 1916, the governor commuted his sentence, and he was promptly released from prison. In 1911, as Joseph Hunter awaited a new trial, he died while still in prison. Harry Northey, Arvilia's, like, third husband, sort of, he eventually remarried, and I imagine that he was a little bit more wary about choosing his second bride. He and his wife had one child, but that union also ended badly for Harry, and the couple divorced and his wife remarried. In 1922, he petitioned the court for joint custody of their three-year-old son. He had wanted to keep the child for part of the year. Instead, uh, the court granted him visitation for three hours each month. And once again, you can't help but feel bad for the guy. Remarkably, I couldn't find anything about Arvilia after 1907 and nothing on George after 1916. My best guess, I think maybe Arvilia assumed yet another alias, and with her husband in jail and her father dead, and it looks like she was estranged from the rest of her family. Under those circumstances, there was no one around to challenge this newest identity, and it is conceivable that she went on to live a quiet, simple life, but people, they may, they may mellow with age, but do they ever completely change? I mean, I don't shoplift anymore, but that doesn't mean that a few free items don't 
occasionally find their way into my apartment. Because, after all, at the end of the day, we are who we are.